You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. I'm going to pray for us and then uh, we'll get started. So let's pray. Father, once again, we praise you and thank you for the chance you've given us to be here today. Um, God, we pray that as we look into your word now that you would prepare our hearts and minds accordingly. God, help me to speak clearly truth that is contained in your word. Um, God, that the Holy Spirit would empower me to um, speak in such a way where people can be encouraged and convicted and challenged. God, I pray the Holy Spirit would help us receive the word. Um, that ultimately we would not be hearers of it, but doers of it. And so God, we pray now that as we transition into this time in our service where, um, where we allow you to speak to us through your word, God, we ask you to do that. And Father, help us to receive it in a way that honors you. God, that it would shape the way that we live this week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are today starting our study on First Thessalonians. Um, I'm excited about that. A lot of you guys were at Mount Gilead when we went through the book of Philippians, which ended up taking maybe a little more than two years. So um, I have no idea how long it's going to take us to go through First and Second Thessalonians, um, but I'm excited about the journey that we're starting together today as we see what God wants us to know from these two really important letters. Um, Again, this is a special day for us as we officially start. Last week, for those of you that were here, you know that we were able to prayer walk a lot of the area here in Sonoy, um, which was, you know, for a lot of different purposes. One, to to let God know that we we understand that we have to rely on Him fully for anything that's going to happen through this church. Um, But I think secondly, too, there's a purpose there in letting the enemy know that we're serious about what we're doing. Um... There was a reminder yesterday that the enemy is very active in this area. Um, as, as one of our members was confronted with Jehovah's Witnesses here in Sonoy, um, you know, it was, it was a challenge to me as, as I, you know, went about the things that I was doing yesterday, knowing that there was someone working against what we're seeking to do here in this community. Um, so it does serve as a reminder that the stakes are high here in Sonoy. Um, As we seek to share the the life-giving gospel to people that desperately need it, we need to understand that there are people out sharing an anti-gospel with people that are looking and searching for something. So the stakes are high, and and it's serious what we're seeking to do here. And so I want to remind you of that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read 1 through 4 today. We're going to mainly focus on one word today, um, and then hopefully come back to 1 through 4 in the coming weeks and look at what else is said in this passage. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. One of the advantages and and benefits of teaching through a book verse by verse 
is that I don't have to think about what to teach on next week. Um, it's real convenient for me. I just teach what's next in the verse. Um, so it's, it's really helpful and convenient. I think it's beneficial, one, just to see Scripture in context. And um, it, it allows God's Word to do, I think, what it's supposed to do in the best designed way. But from a, just from a selfish standpoint, it makes it a lot easier on me because I don't have to choose what we're going to talk about next week. It's already been decided for us. The challenge, the challenge for teaching through a book verse by verse is that you can't dodge difficult topics. Everybody knows when you do. You know, if we just breeze right over difficult passages and there's no comment or mention about them, then it leaves you when you go home saying, why didn't we talk about that? Like, what's going on there? So that's the difficulty for me is that when we come to difficult passages, I'm forced to deal with them. And and I like that because um, it allows us to deal with them in the context that God desires. And I think it's important as we start off 1 Thessalonians, mainly because Paul thinks it's important, um, that we understand what it means to be chosen in Christ. Um, That we take a look at that this morning. In your notes, a major theme of the Thessalonian letters is the encouragement and hope available to the believer. A major theme of the Thessalonian letters is the encouragement and hope available to the believer because of the certain second coming of Jesus Christ. A major theme of the Thessalonian letters, the encouragement and hope available to the believer because of the certain second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at this, I want us to understand the difference between systematic theology and what we call biblical theology. Can anybody give me a definition for what systematic theology is? There's a lot of systematic theology books um, that you can pick up and read. Anybody... Give me an idea of what systematic theology is. Nobody? Yeah, yeah. If you want to put in your notes, it's the Bible's whole teaching on a certain topic or truth. It's the Bible's whole teaching on a certain topic or truth. The Bible's whole teaching on a certain topic or truth. This is what we've been doing a lot since we started meeting together um, in anticipation of this church plan. We did a systematic theology study of what God's word says about money. We didn't start in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation and look at every verse in order. We just took and compiled everything or a lot of what scripture has to say about money. Kind of put that together and taught through a systematic theology of money. Biblical theology. Biblical theology is the progressive revealing. This line's probably not going to be long enough. The progressive revealing of God's plan to save man. The progressive revealing of God's plan to save man. That might fit, but I only gave you half of it. (laughs) It really should say God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory. (laughs) That's not fit. Biblical 
theology is looking at how Scripture progressively reveals God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for God's glory. Because that's ultimately what Scripture is about. Scripture is designed to show us and to teach us how God plans to save man from his sin through Christ for God's glory. It's not designed to answer all of our questions about anything that we can come up with. It's designed to teach us how God plans to save man from his sin through Christ for God's glory. So our focus for today, we're not doing systematic theology about our salvation. We are focusing in on this word chosen. Paul says you you have been chosen. You've been chosen by God. And so I want us to see how God progressively, progressively reveals how he plans to save you individually. How does he progressively reveal to save you? So the focus for today is to show progressively how God has always planned to save you. It's to show progressively how God has always planned to save you. Paul comes to these people at Thessalonica and he says, God has chosen you. God has chosen you. He says in verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So today we're looking at a brief biblical theology of your salvation, also known as being chosen. Number one, my salvation My salvation has always been the plan. My salvation has always been the plan. I don't know about you guys, but my personality lends itself to always wanting to know the future. I want to know how things are going to turn out. Um, I'm constantly trying to spoil surprises if I think someone's trying to surprise me with something. Um, This past year when Lauren was trying to put together my 30th birthday party... Um, I kind of figured that she might be doing that. And so I wasn't going to let her get away with trying to surprise me. It was my mission to figure out what's going on. I, I'm a surprise spoiler. Um, for those of you that are big into Harry Potter, I've only picked up one book and I've only read one chapter. And it was the last book and the last chapter. <laughs> I wasn't about to wonder how this thing was going to turn out. I wanted to know from the very beginning what happens. Um, I'm a surprise spoiler. I, I, I need to know how things turn out. And I'm very thankful, very thankful that in God's word, he tells us how everything turns out. Now, I, I told you earlier today that, that my interest and my desire to know about the second coming has been increased in the past couple of years. Just as I continue to read the New Testament and realize it's such a point of emphasis in the New Testament. Now, again, I told you, I don't have a clue how all the details really get worked out. I just know Jesus is coming back. And and I'm excited about what the book of Revelation does tell us will happen. I want to turn your attention to Revelation In Revelation 13, we'll start reading in verse 5. It says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, 
that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I don't, I don't fully understand what's going on there. I don't know who the beast is, what the beast is. I don't know what the 42 months are. But verse 8 is important to me. It says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now let's understand what Scripture is definitely telling us here. Scripture is definitely telling us that in some sense there is a book of life that is based on the slain work of Jesus Christ. And there are people's names that have been written there since before the foundation of the world. I don't fully understand how those names got there. I don't understand God's role and our role as far as salvation fully goes in that sense. What I do know from Scripture is that there are names in a book that have been there since before the foundation of the world. And John says those names that aren't written there are going to worship this beast. Whoever's on earth at that time, whenever that was or is. But the names were there before the foundation of the world. Look back with me at Ephesians 1.4. We've been memorizing this passage in um, my sixth grade class of Trinity and uh, been trying to explain it to a group of sixth graders. So it's a difficult passage to try to memorize right off the bat, sixth graders. It says in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He says all this was decided and happened before, before the foundation of the world. So my point is, is that your salvation is not God's plan B. It's not. God didn't create the earth, create Adam and Eve. And then them mess everything up with sin, and now God's got to roll out plan B. This was always, always, always plan A. In God's wisdom and mystery, he had designed the plan of salvation before he ever created. Which means God knew about sin, God anticipated sin. He used sin for his glory and honor. Your salvation was, was put in place before the foundation of the world. Your name was written in a book. God made some decisions to make sure that you got saved before the foundation of the world. It's not plan B. God's plan A did not get messed up. And all of a sudden, this is second rate, second best. This is all we could come up with next. This was plan A. This was God's plan from the beginning. Number two. We're seeing how God has progressively revealed your salvation. We started at the end. What we just did, it started at the end. We've shown you that your salvation, your salvation started from the very beginning. And it's confirmed in the end because we're looking into the book of Revelation. There's a book there with names there that have been there for a very long time. Your salvation has always been the plan. Number two, my salvation 
My salvation is based on a promise made in a garden. My salvation is based on a promise made in a garden. Genesis chapter 3, we're given the account of the fall. It thoroughly explains why our earth and why our society is the way that it is. Because Adam and Eve rejected God's creator rights. As creator, we have a responsibility to be obedient to God. They reject God. They do things their way. Satan comes in and tempts them and says, if you do this, you'll be like God. The same same thought process that he had when he was in heaven, I want to be like God. That didn't work out so well. So he comes down and sees if he can convince mankind to believe the same thing, which they do, which we do. And sin enters the world. And God comes looking for Adam and Eve. Remember, God has communicated to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you will die. As soon as Adam and Eve eat of it, they realize death might be coming to us, and so they hide. And God calls them out and begins to issue out punishment for the sin. Verse 14, God starts with Satan. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This passage is is a lot of times known as the proto-evangelium, or the first mention of the gospel. The first mention of the gospel. It's brief. There's not a whole lot of detail here. You don't hear about cross. You don't hear about resurrection. All you hear is God communicate something to Satan. He's essentially saying, Satan, I I see what you're doing here. I see that you came down here to try to turn the the image that I've created of me against me. I see that you've tried to, to warp my plan by getting Adam and Eve to rebel against me. But I've got some news for you, Satan. I plan to send someone who will ultimately rescue mankind back to me. He says, I'm going to send somebody, Satan, through the, through the offspring of this woman. I'm going to send a man who will ultimately defeat you. Who will ultimately bring Eve's offspring back to me. See, we're, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we're born into sin. We're born enemies of God. We're born separated from God. We're born deserving God's wrath. And if left in that condition... Every one of Adam and Eve's offspring would spend eternity in hell. But thanks be to God, Genesis 3.15, from the very beginning, God says, You don't realize, Satan, this is my plan A. This is my plan A, not my plan B. You fell right into it. I'm about to use your sin and deception to unroll the greatest plan that anybody could ever come up with. He says, you're about to see something unbelievable here, Satan. I'm going to take an offspring of Eve, and I'm going to turn people back to me. And ultimately, you're going to be defeated, your plans are going to be spoiled, and I'm going to receive unbelievable amounts of glory for this. Colossians 1.11, we see this fulfilled in Christ. Colossians 1.11 
He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes to transfer us back to God. He comes to rescue us from what Satan perverted in the garden. He transfers us from being children of Satan to children of God. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus died on the cross... That was a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where God says, I'm going to send someone, Satan, to crush your head. To stomp on your head and ultimately destroy everything you're trying to do. Your salvation is based on a promise made in a garden thousands and thousands of years ago before you were ever born. Essentially, God said, I've got a book here and I've got names in here and salvation is going to happen. And I'm going to show everyone how it's going to happen. And I'm going to start from the very beginning. Genesis 3.15, salvation is going to happen. And he begins to progressively reveal how he plans to save you. Because your name is in a book and it's responsibility on God for that to happen, for your salvation to happen. Number three, my salvation is based on a promise made to Abraham. My salvation is based on a promise made to Abraham. We move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12. We're seeing how God's progressively revealing salvation. Genesis 3 to Genesis 12. Now, if you were to sit down and just read through the book of Genesis and you didn't know anything about the book of the Genesis or anything about the Bible, you would be reading through the book of Genesis wondering, when's it going to get better? You read through the book of Genesis and you you get past Genesis 3.15 where there's some good news. And then it's just bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. You come to Genesis after 3.15, Jesus or God says, you're, you guys got to leave the garden. Like, you're out of here. Like, paradise is done. You got to go work. Childbearing is going to be hard. Your relationship with each other and marriage is going to be hard. Like, you're out of here. Then you continue to read and you've got Cain and Abel who can't get along. Cain kills Abel. Then you've, got, then you've got a flood that happens where God just says, everything is evil here. I, got it. I just got it. I'm starting over. I'm getting rid of this. I can't take this anymore. And worldwide flood happens. Then you get done with that and you see God have to come down and, and stop the plans that were being developed at Babel. Where you've got everybody on earth trying to build a tower to get to God. And God comes in and messes up everybody's language and everybody has to spread out because nobody understands each other. It seems like every time God comes down, there's wrath or punishment or judgment or just bad news coming. So you're reading through Genesis and you're like, when does this get good again? And you come to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then the last part is so important. 
And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says, Abraham, I need to to tell you about a plan that I've had for a while now. He says, i got a plan to bless you, to make your name great. I'm going to make a nation out of you. We know that nation to be Israel. We know that God ultimately wanted a nation of his own so that he could give them the Bible. We're told in Genesis 3 that that the oracles of God, that the Bible has been given to Israel so that it could be spread out to all of us. We're told that God wanted a nation to serve as a light in the midst of all the evil. But we're ultimately told that God needed a nation or a line, Abraham's line, to bring Jesus through. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham as a man. God says, Abraham, you're going to be the chosen one. You're the one that I'm going to bring Jesus through. So God's plan to save me is based on God working through Abraham to do it. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And ultimately, through you, I'm going to bless everybody. Now, if you're just reading in Genesis, you don't fully understand what that means. He's going to bless everybody through Abraham? How's he plan to do that? We see in Galatians 3, 7. Don't ever take for granted the fact that we live in the New Testament because we get a whole lot more revelation than the people in the Old Testament. I mean, it is great to go from Genesis 12 to Galatians 3 and know exactly what God was talking about. If you're Abraham, you're just like, all right, I don't know how that's going to work, but all right. You go to Galatians chapter 3, though, and we say, oh, that's how. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We get this ultimate picture that, wow, God actually planned for Abraham to father a physical nation, Israel. But he says, I plan to save the Gentiles through Abraham because Jesus comes through Abraham. So in a sense, Abraham is our spiritual father because Christ is a descendant of Abraham. He says, if, if, you're, a, if you're a child of faith, if you've gotten saved, then you're a descendant of Abraham. He says in verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Wrap your minds around this. God makes a promise in Genesis 12. That your salvation is contingent on him keeping the promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. And in order to do that, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And when you understand that your salvation flows out of that promise, it radically changes how you read the Old Testament. It radically changes how you read the Old Testament. Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph's a descendant of Abraham. You come to the story of Joseph. I'm afraid sometimes we think Old Testament Bible stories are just easy ways for us to come up with children's Sunday school lessons. Like, hey, what a great story. Like, that'll be great for Sunday. We'll teach that in Sunday school. The Old Testament stories are way more than easy children's Sunday school lessons. If you're reading in the context that your salvation is contingent on God keeping promises to Abraham, it shapes how you read the story of Joseph. You may have heard sermons preached on Joseph about sexual purity. Guys, if you want to fight sexual purity, you need to run when sexual temptation comes to you. Just like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. You flee sexual temptation. 
Or you may have heard of sermons about how pride cometh before a fall. Joseph shares all these crazy dreams about how his brothers will worship him one day. And he seems to be boastful and braggy about it. And all of a sudden they say, we're tired of hearing about your boasting. We're going to sell you as a slave. So be careful about how you, you handle pride in your life. Those are, great, those are great principles. But if you read the Old Testament story of Joseph in the context that, hey, there's a promise that has to get fulfilled here. Joseph is the descendant of Abraham, and he's in Egypt. Why? We're supposed to be making a great nation here. We're supposed to be making Israel so that I can get saved as a Gentile down the road. Then you read about Joseph coming to Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, there's going to be a great famine in the land. Remember that? Joseph's in prison, and he's a good dream interpreter. And so word gets back to Pharaoh that he can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh says, hey, I I had a dream about skinny cows and fat cows, and and they eat each other. What, What does that mean? Joseph says, there's about to be a really bad famine. If we're not careful, everybody's going to die. And we should read that and say, no, that can't happen. That can't happen because I need need the nation of Israel to happen because I need to be saved. And God has said that I'll be saved through Abraham's line. So Abraham's descendants who aren't in Egypt right now, they can't die. God made a promise to Abraham and that's that's my salvation. That's got to happen. And so you read in anticipation about how God brings the children of Israel to Egypt and feeds them during a crazy time of famine. Which means when Joseph, you may remember the end of the story, Joseph brings his, his brothers together and they're all crying and, oh, so sorry that we did that to you. And Joseph makes the statement that you probably heard many times. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? I mean, we've all heard that. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And most of the time we read that and say, yeah, like God definitely meant that for good. Like Joseph needed food and, and Israel needed food. But what you need to understand is Joseph may not even fully understand what he's saying. He says, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for the good of everybody at Sovereign Hope. Because if, if God hadn't brought me to Egypt so that I could prepare food for you guys to eat, the nation of Israel doesn't happen and Gentiles don't get saved through Christ. So you read the Old Testament in anticipation of how is God going to bring Israel through all this because my salvation matters. If God's not faithful to Israel, he can't be faithful to me. It's a beautiful unfolding story that ends with your salvation. Your salvation is contingent on a promise made in a garden. It's contingent on a promise made to a man named Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is God working out what he promised before the world. God says, I'm going to bless all families through you, Abraham. Jesus carries this theme over in Matthew 24, 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus says, I'm not coming back until the gospel goes all over this planet. Why? Because he made a promise to Abraham that said he would be a blessing to all families. Jesus says, I'm not coming back until all families get this gospel. Your salvation is contingent on a promise being kept to Abraham. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because we made a promise to Abraham that we're going to bless all families. And there's Gentiles that need to be saved. Their name is written in a book of life. And they're going to get saved, so go tell them about Jesus. Go tell them about me. 
Revelation 7. Revelation 7, 9. We've looked at this before. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Genesis 12, God says, Abraham... Things are bleak right now. Nobody's following me. I keep flooding the earth. I'm spreading people out because they, they want to build a tower towards me. Here's the plan, Abraham. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. It starts right here with you. I'm going to make a nation out of you called Israel. And I'm going to bless the entire world through you because your offspring is going to be Jesus who's going to deliver the entire world from sin. But in order for that to happen, Abraham, we've got to have a nation. So get ready because I'm about to give you a child and they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids, and it's going to outnumber the sands on the sea and the stars in the sky. That's important for you because that's your salvation. God's unfolding how he plans to save Luke, how he plans to save Lauren, how he plans to save Jen, how he plans to save Will. This is how I'm going to do it. Number four, my salvation is based on the comings, plural, of Christ. My salvation is based on the comings of Christ. He reveals to us that our salvation was planned before the foundation of the world. He reveals to us, garden, I'm going to save you, Luke. He reveals to us that Abraham, Jesse, I'm going to save you. I'm going to do it through Abraham. My salvation is based on the comings of Christ. Matthew 3, 9. Children of Israel get a little prideful in the fact that they come from Abraham. Jesus says, don't presume to yourselves we have Abraham as our father. He tells the Pharisees, he says, don't feel good about the fact that you came from Abraham. Like, don't, don't fly the Abraham flag and say, man, we are so awesome because we come from Abraham. He says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Jesus says, don't get prideful about your salvation in thinking that you're something special. He says, if, if God needed to, he could raise up kids from stones and call them the children of Abraham. There's no boasting in our salvation. You didn't do anything for it. I told you as we were taking the Lord's Supper today that you could turn to Romans chapter 4. I want you to turn there now. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, discussion about Abraham. We know about Abraham now. He's a man that God came to and promised to, to save you through. So Abraham's important in your spiritual life. He's important in your family history from a spiritual context. Paul has a discussion about Abraham. He says, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Paul says, this is how you get saved. You don't do good works. He says, Abraham didn't do good works to get saved. He says, if he did, he'd have something to boast about, but he hasn't got anything to boast about. He says, here's what saved Abraham. He believed what God said. He said he believed God. He got up, packed up his things, and started following God when God came to him and said, get out of your country. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Paul says, now to you guys, don't try to do good works. He says, the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He says, you need to believe what God has told you. You need to believe what God has told you. Let's get down to verse 9. Is this the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He says, was Abraham saved after he did good works or before his good works? He says it's clear he was saved before his good works. He was counted righteous before he was ever circumcised. He says he got circumcised after his salvation. We get baptized after our salvation. Baptism doesn't save us. Lord's Supper doesn't save us. Going to church doesn't save us. Being holy and blameless doesn't save us. Those things come after salvation. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were saved for good works. We were saved for good works. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved for, our, we're saved for good works. Good works come after salvation, not before. I've been teaching my sixth graders that at school. It's amazing how many of them think that good works save them. When I ask them what it takes to get to heaven, good works comes up all the time. I'm trying to drill it into their heads. You can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. Good works don't come before salvation. They come after salvation. For us, we're to believe that we can put our faith in Christ and be saved. Your salvation is based on the first coming and the second coming of Christ. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. But you haven't fully reaped the benefits of your salvation yet. When Jesus comes back, then, then you get the salvation fully realized. Your salvation is based on the comings of Christ. Number five. Number five. My salvation is based on God's initiative. My salvation is based on God's initiative. This is where it gets difficult. So I want to be careful as we move into this. John 6, 44. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws me. And I think we all realize this. We, we pray for this. We've got a prayer list going around right now for people in our church where you guys have singled out people in your life that you want to be saved. And we pray for their salvation. What do we pray? We pray that, they, that God would convict them of sin, that God would open their eyes to the gospel, that God would draw them to salvation. So we pray for this to happen. So we know that this is necessary, that God has to work in someone's life for them to be saved. We know from Romans 10, 14 through 17... That the gospel has to be preached to somebody for them to be saved. We know that God has to do something for anybody to be saved. He has to make sure that someone takes the gospel to you. At some point in, in Chris Henson's life, 
The gospel was shared to him. God took initiative to make sure that someone came to Chris, communicated the gospel to Chris. Same for Jason. Same for Tiffany. Their salvation was based on God working in their life. And part of that working was him sending someone to share the gospel with them. Romans 10 says, you can't be saved unless you hear the gospel. I like what Acts 18 verse 9 says. Acts 18 verse 9. Paul's being um, just kind of lit up for what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's getting persecuted. He's getting hated upon. Um, he's, he's enduring a lot trying to share the gospel right now. And, and so he's trying to determine, where do I stay? Where do I go? Do I stay here even though I might die? Or should I go ahead and go somewhere else where I can share the gospel? And God comes to him in, in verse 9. He's in Corinth right now. Corinth. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Paul's thinking about leaving. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one attack will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You get what God's saying here? He says, Paul, you can't leave yet, my friend. You can't leave Corinth. Why, God? Like, like there's a lot of heat on me right now. You can't leave because I got people in this town that need to get saved. He says, I got people. My people are here. They haven't responded to the gospel yet, though. But I see their names right here in this book that I've had since before the foundation of the world. You have to stay and keep sharing the gospel with these people because I got people here. You can't leave. You have to share the gospel. They can't get saved unless you hear the gospel. You stay right here and you keep sharing the gospel. It says he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What's really cool is that during this year and six months, as he's ministering here in Corinth, Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians. He writes First and Second Thessalonians, this, the books that we're going to study from this context, where he was told to stay because there are people here that need to be saved. It's really cool to see how God works and how he reveals salvation, how he's unfolding it, how he's given us so much indication that he's planned to save us. Number six. My salvation is based on my responsibility. My salvation is based on my responsibility. It would be unfortunate and dead wrong for us to think that anybody has an excuse for not being saved. You can get in debates about um, God choosing people and electing people and predestination. You can get into all kinds of topics about that. But if you, if you draw the conclusion that anybody has an excuse for not being saved, it's a dead wrong conclusion. Okay, in, in John chapter six, John chapter six, this is such a, this is such a comforting verse to me. I love John chapter, I love John six thirty seven. 
Look what John 6, 37, the first part says. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That goes back to what we saw in Revelation. There's a book with names written in it of people that will be saved. Jesus said, every single person in that book will be saved. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Nobody that's in that book is going gonna, is gonna to botch it up and not get saved. But, but... The second part's really important too. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He's reminding us, you don't have a scenario where where Toby comes forward and says, Hey, I want to be saved. Ah, sorry, dude, you're not in the book. Like, this book's been around since the foundation of the world. It's the name of everybody that's going to get saved. You're not in it. You weren't chosen to be in it. Sorry, pal. Like, you can't get saved. No, Jesus says, there is not one single person that could ever come to Jesus and be told no. He says, if you come to me, you're not getting cast out. You don't come to me and, and, and get this response of, no, nah, I didn't save you. I didn't die on the cross for you. No. Jesus says, nobody can come to me and be cast out. He says, anyone who comes will get saved. Anybody who comes to me will get saved. Romans 1.16 Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Salvation is made available to everyone. John 3.16. Christ came to die on the cross for everyone. He came to make salvation available. Nobody comes to Jesus and gets cast out. No one comes and gets rejected. And yet Jesus says, everyone that's going to come, everyone who's supposed to come will come. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, Gentiles have been shared the gospel. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a part we skipped over in this progressive revelation of your salvation. God chooses Paul to ultimately spread the gospel like wildfire to the Gentiles, which is us. So at some point, somebody that had an influence on sharing the gospel with you was saved as a result of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Since when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Salvation has been made available, which means nobody has an excuse for not being saved. Those who do not accept the gospel will be held responsible for their decision and choice. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. That second coming popping up again. It's all through the New Testament. It's not just in the book of Revelation. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back with angels and with his saints. He's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It doesn't say anything about God bringing judgment on people that God didn't choose. There's no burden of responsibility put on God here. These people don't go to hell because God didn't choose them. They go to hell because they didn't obey the gospel. They go to hell because of their sin. They go to hell because they didn't come to Christ. Christ said, if you come to me, I won't reject you. I won't cast you out. Paul says when Jesus comes back, he's bringing vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel. People who who experience hell for eternity are always held responsible for their decisions and choices. My salvation is based on God's initiative, but my salvation is based on my responsibility. What you see in Scripture, from before the foundation of the world, all the way to the book of Revelation, where there are nations standing before God and worshiping Him, is that God worked everything out for salvation. He promised it in Genesis 3.15. He promised it to Abraham. He protected Israel all through the Old Testament so that there was a nation, so there was a line for Jesus to come through in the New Testament. He ensures that Gentiles get saved as Paul begins to proclaim the gospel all over Europe. And at some point in your life, God made sure that people came to you with the gospel. He worked in your life and you you were brought to saving faith in him. And it was something that was designed before the foundation of the world. It wasn't plan B. It was always plan A. And God has designed it so that when you get saved, he gets all the glory. He did it all. And when you don't get saved, all the responsibility is on you. It's really the only way that he can design it to where he gets all the glory when salvation does happen. Because he's the one that's been planning it since the beginning of time. So it's not like, hey, look at me. Like, look at the good works that I did to get saved. No. God planned your salvation before the foundation of the world. He's been been planning for thousands of years to the point in time where Dave responded to the gospel. He planned it before the foundation of the world. God gets all the glory when you accept Christ. When you don't accept Christ, though, you get all the responsibility. All the responsibility. The application, and we're done. Number one. These are not hard applications. Application number one, get saved. Get saved. Jesus is coming back and you will be held responsible. For some of you, God's been working for your salvation before the foundation of the world. And you need to respond to the gospel. You need to realize that your good works can't get you to heaven. That Christ has come to do everything for you. You've never done that. And when Christ comes back... You're going to be held responsible for that. Secondly, tell people how to get saved. Tell people how to get saved. Out beside that, there are people in this city that belong to God. I fully believe that. There are people in Sonoy and Griffin and Noonan and the surrounding areas that belong to God. And when I almost made the decision to go to the mission field, to plant a church overseas, 
I believe part of the reason God wanted me to stay here was the same reason he wanted Paul to stay in Corinth. You can't leave yet because there are people here that I've been working for their salvation since the beginning of time. And you need to stay here and share the gospel as a church with them. Sovereign hope, there are people in this city that are supposed to be saved that we have a responsibility to take the gospel to. They can't get saved unless we take the gospel to them. Paul says, you've been chosen. God's been working for your salvation since the beginning of time. We've got to take the gospel to them. We've got to take the gospel to them. Let's pray. God, we, we confess that we are... We are at times ignorant and our wisdom is lacking in really fully understanding how salvation works from your perspective. We know what scripture says, God. We know that you've told us that you've been working for our salvation since the beginning of time. We know that you've done everything necessary to draw people to you. We definitely know from Scripture that it is our responsibility to come and be saved. That you have given every single person the responsibility to choose. To choose life or to choose death. To choose righteousness or to choose wrath. So God, I pray for anyone in here today that has never been saved. God, that you draw them to salvation. You convict them of their sin. You'd open their eyes to the gospel. God, help them to see that they're responsible for coming to you or not coming to you. And then on judgment day, you'll hold them responsible for that. God, I praise you and thank you for those that you have saved in this room. God, I thank you for the work that has been happening since the Garden of Eden. God, it blows my mind to think that the day that I got saved was a day that you had been working for. That you had been putting detail after detail into place to where my salvation happened. And God, I thank you so much for saving me. And God, I pray that this church would be faithful to tell other people how to be saved. Father, we want to add to this church through new conversions. God, we don't want to be the next new thing that, um, that begins to draw people from other churches in Sonoy. We know that's going to happen and we rejoice over that, God, that you're going to bring new, new believers into our, into our body to serve here and to learn here and to be discipled here. But God, we want to think in terms of seeing people in this city that have never been saved. To receive the gospel through the efforts of this church. So God, we're asking that you would use us to make an eternal impact here. As we prayed last week, God, that that people would be raised from the dead down the road. Who had died. They would be raised to new life with you when you come back. Because of the efforts of this church. God, help us to rejoice in our salvation this morning. But God, help us to realize that. The plan of salvation is not done yet. There are still people that need to be brought into this plan. People that you've been working for since the beginning of time. So God, help us to be faithful to the Great Commission. 
to go and make disciples of all nations. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tyson's going to come and lead us.